This is the number one showbiz podcast. It's Talk for Two. Here's your host, Matt Bailey. Merry Christmas and welcome to another episode. And then we will be good to go. Merry Christmas and welcome to another episode of Talk for Two on this most festive of holidays. I am so thrilled to have with me our special guest. He's Frank Mir, a former two-time UFC heavyweight champion. He holds the record for the most finishes and the most submission victories in UFC history in any division. Mir had the longest continuous tenure of any fighter in the UFC, competing for the company from 2001 to 2018. A lot of people think it was actually 2016, but it was 2018 he was under uh, he was under contract for two years after his last fight. That's true. Most people know that. Now he's turned his attention to coaching his daughter, Bella, who just won her first victory in October of this year. And he set another record, the very first sports, sports star, to sit down on this show. Frank, it is so good to have you here. Thank you for coming into the studio. I really appreciate You're it. You're welcome. I'm glad I was able to make it. Thanks. Wow, this is a thrill. Before we get into it, you know, as you can probably tell from this room, I'm about the furthest thing away from a sports aficionado that you would ever expect. And I understand. You haven't met my friend uh, Richard Hunter. <laughs> <laughs> you know, there. I understand the appeal of baseball, the appeal of football, but what makes someone say, you know what, for a living, I'm going to get choked out, and I'm going to choke other people out, and I'm going to fight and box, and what drives someone to do that? I've always wondered. Well, I think that, I mean, look, at, at the end of the day, being able to protect yourself and being a warrior is very much an essential part of our survival. Um, I don't care how idealistic your tribe is, how great they are at farming and hunting, if my tribe is better at warfare than we have all your stuff, your children aren't going to live and I'm going to take all your women. And that was a very primitive way of looking at life, but that's what we've evolved from. And so I think that there's a certain baseline approach that a lot of people want to be able to, you know, if you can't protect yourself, then it's hard to have a basis or thought in ideas and say, hey, this is what I feel is true, it's what I feel is right, but if you can't enforce that and you can't you know, create some type of defense, um, then they don't count for anything. You know, it's just the world is cruel and it is what it is. So uh, I think that I was always drawn to martial arts because it was a way of first understanding how to protect myself and protect others. And it's funny, even with my traditional background, I grew up doing Kimbo karate in my dad's school. I was. I don't even remember being there. I was so young when I started out. You know, a little brat running around, you know, uh, you know, uh, while my dad's trying to teach class. <laughs> but I mean, certain things, like when we bow in, you know, there's certain things that our hands gesture meant that when we bowed in, our, our left foot would slide to our right foot when we bowed. And that actually was even symbolic there that was being taught to me at a very young age that said that no, this is that the, the weaker always come to the strong for protection. And that's your job is to make yourself as strong as possible to protect others that aren't able to. And so I was drawn to wanting to be a warrior at a very young age. And then when I went in there, I found out that, look, I was born, look, as Buffett said, you know, we, we hit the lottery. I was born in the U.S. 
Um, you know, and my father was born in a different country, so I have an idea of what it's like. I have some concepts, and, and, and I hear stories of what it's like to be born outside the U.S. So I'm very grateful, and I am very much able to acknowledge that I've scored the lottery, that I was born here. But the problem with that is that there's not a lot of aggression, not a lot of issues. If you, you, you know, I grew up middle class, even though I grew up, you know, a little less than middle class, but, you know, at still at the same time, it wasn't like I had to, you know, fight off militias from, you know, stealing my wife or stealing my, my daughter. And so um, I wanted to push myself in adversity because I found that's what made the truth. So when I walked inside of a octagon or I walked inside of a ring or if I walked on any type of mat, when I went out there and fought, it pushed me to my limits and actually broke me. And it would basically dispel illusions. Uh, so many men and women have this idea of like, well, you know, if this happens, this is what I'm going to do. I'm all, but you don't know because you haven't pushed yourself that hard. Mm -hmm. You haven't put yourself in the furnace of a, of a hot fire to see what your metal is really made out of. And once people start going down that path, like I've done with the martial arts, you find out that everybody's lacking. Nobody is as strong as we want to be. Mm -hmm. But you need to constantly break yourself down, bash yourself, and then pick the pieces up and make them stronger and more fit so that the next time you go out there, you're a little bit tougher, a little bit stronger. And that's what really attracted me to the martial arts. And, and also, too, just the whole facet of how to defeat yourself. I mean, at the end of the day, whether I'm out in the wilderness and there's a bear who wants to eat me, whether I'm in a, in a, in a boardroom having a conversation trying to make a pitch and somebody's trying to figure out a way to take money out of my pocket, um, at the end of the day, there's always adversaries out there, but the one adversary that's consistent, that's constant in all battles is yourself. And I find that in the world of MMA, walking in, in a martial arts arena, that really makes it to where there's no way to hide that. You're always battling yourself. And, and that's why I've fallen in love with martial arts. And that's why even I have bestowed that upon my children. I didn't tell them to be professional fighters. <laughs> I tell people I, I, I relate this to music. Being able to play a musical instrument is a, is a great trait to have. Builds all kind of characteristics and as far as mental development that are very uh, favorable. Mm -hmm. But it doesn't mean I want you to drop out of school to go be a fucking rock star. Yeah. Right? And so that's how I look at fighting. Look, being a professional fighter is its own separate you know, entity and, you know, and its own thing. But as far as being a martial artist, all my children are martial artists. You know, it's interesting because people, when they think of the martial arts, they think of aggression, right? They think of aggression mm -hmm. first, but talking with you, and, we, and you've been in town for a few days, it seems like the martial arts and, and your career taught you a lot about integrity and how to treat people. Well, absolutely, because also, too, I mean, look, why are you being a warrior? You know, and, 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 and martial arts is, you know, aggression is a facet of combat, right? Yeah. Um, but really it's that we deal with violence you know and i am very comfortable being in violent situations because on a daily basis i'm walking in a room where me and my buddies we strap up our gloves and we say hi and how's your wife how's your wife oh hey bella has a thing going on tomorrow cool all right and now we're going to try to murder each other for the next two hours very violently <laughs> and then when we're done hey man do you want to stop afterwards and go to greens and protein and go get a pro you know, uh, you know uh, buy some buffalo wrap let's have that let's eat that before we yeah. go to and so we learn how to deal with violence but 
we're all doing that for the main reason of like, I need to make myself as strong as possible. So I am a contributing factor to the tribe. I think that all men, and, and, and again, look, my daughter's a professional fighter, so obviously there's always exceptions and little outliers to the rules. But I think generally most men, our role is to be the protector. Right? And so to be the protector, to be the, the sheepdog, you have to have integrity. You have to realize, look, my strength is given to me, and I'm developing my strength to be superior over to other predators, is not to be a bully, to not take advantage, not to be a raider, but to be a protector, to be able to make sure that my wife and my daughter and my children and my neighbor's wife and daughter and children can feel safe and live a good life. That's... That's beautiful. That's brilliant. But sitting here, and I hate to go negative, but do some people get into it for the wrong reasons? Do some people no, get, get into it to be violent, to have a violent outlet? Well, I mean, you have some people that have, you know, they have a hole in their heart. You know, sure. some whatever their upbringing, they, you know, uh, look, when you're a victim of crime, you know, a victim of violence at a young age, I think some people, <clears throat> you know, there's different routes you can go. You know, I was somebody that, you know, that because I was a very passive individual naturally, my inclination is always to avoid conflict. So being a very large athletic kid at a young age, um, that led me to a lot of violent confrontations because it looked good to beat me up. Mm -hmm. And so uh, there's different routes somebody in my position could have gone. I could have gone to become in a situation like that, like, well, being the victim sucks. I'm going to be the victimizer. Mm -hmm. I'm going to be the guy out there that hurts people. I'm going to be the guy that goes out there and makes people lose sleep. I'm going to be the one. That, and that's what happens. That's what kind of creates a bully. That's what creates a predator. It's like, well, I'm tired of being the victim, so I'm going to overcompensate and become the aggressor. And, uh, you know, hey, it's a very seductive route that a lot of people, you know, they look, I'd be lying to you if I told you people didn't take that route. But it's something that I'm very aware of. And when I train people, I make sure that, like, look, um, the skill set that we do in the gym, training, I can kill somebody. I mean, uh, we see people die all the time uh, accidentally when it comes to chokeholds and, and different, you know, getting punched, um, you know. I'm learning how to, and the skills we have, that's the reason why there's a referee in the ring, to make sure people don't die, <laughs> you, know? you know? That's why we can tap, so we can avoid, you know, uh, severe bodily harm. But uh, if you're the kind of person that, and I see you, and I can read that on you, that that's what you're looking for, you're looking for just to become a more dangerous predator, then no. And I, and I use that, and I feel like it's my moral obligation to avoid training people that way. And if I see you come in, and I see you're a person of weak character, and it's not something that I feel that I can fix. Because there are some people that come in and right off the bat, people are like, hey, that's not a good person. I'm like, he's not yet. She's not yet. But give me some time. Let me get her in there for a little bit, get them in there, and let this world make them a better person. There are some people, and it's not happening to me often, but there's been a few occasions where I've, and, and I feel almost guilty about it because I wish I was a better coach or a better instructor, professor, where I've seen young men where I've looked in their eyes and go, no, I'm not teaching you how to hurt people because that's going to come back to hurt somebody else. Yeah. Now, let's talk about your daughter for a little bit. We, uh, I was actually, it's funny, my job in television, I was working with your publicist to book you while you were down in Mexico for that fight. Right, the first one, yeah. As a dad, not as a coach, as a dad, how did that feel? Oh, you know what? It's a, it's a horrible feeling and it's a beautiful feeling. 
Look, as a father, I think all fathers should want their children to be successful, happy, and better than they were. And my daughter is on that route. She's on that journey. She's happy with what she does. She's successful at it. And she's going to be better than I ever was. Um, and so that makes me happy. But there's also still the part of me that goes, that's my daughter that I held in the shower. My wife, wife washed her. You know what I mean? I, I, that's my baby that I got up at 3 in the morning to go make a bottle. And it was my, you know, because I'm a night owl, so I gave her the night feedings while my wife took care of her in the morning. You know, and somebody's going to go out there and hurt her. And, and not so much physical hurt, but then also, too, going out there and maybe dis being disappointed with her performance. Going out there and, and it's not even about winning or losing, but going out there and being disgusted with something that she invests her whole life in. Like, fighters were obsessive. Like, if you become the type of person who's going to fight professionally or do any sport professionally or do any endeavor where you're like, this is everything, that's your identity. That's what you define yourself by. So it's not like we're just some stock trader we have a bad day at the office it's like well i lost a little bit today but there's always tomorrow when i have a bad day at an office i feel like i'm a worthless human being and, and that's i think very much the common you know thought process behind most professionals that when we have a bad day at our craft it defines us so that's the part that scares me as a father is that when everybody else in the room the day of the fight you know they're, they're looking at my daughter I know what's going through her head. I know what she feels like, you know, and so when she looks at me and gives me that look of anxiety where it's overwhelming, like there's a part of me that like, um, that it, I understand her pain and her anxiety more than most, more than anybody else, you know, that, that has not stepped in the arena where there's thousands, if not millions of people watching you mm -hmm. to see how you're going to perform. And the only solace I do take in that is that because I've been down that path, I can sit there, and there's pictures of us on the internet where you sit there and I'm holding her, and people are asking, what are you saying? I'm like, I'm talking her through it. I know when the demons come, the, the different thoughts and doubt and the, and the anxiety is hitting her, I'm there walking her through it, going, okay, baby, hold my hand, and we're going to walk through this together. I absolutely love that. Now, you've been out of UFC for, for a little bit now. What are you doing now? Well, currently I just signed with BKFC, which is a bare knuckle fight league. I saw it as an opportunity for a new challenge. Um, you know, look, I've been doing mixed martial arts for about 20 years, and the coaching part intrigues me, and fighting still does, but I, I got a little bored with it just because there's, there's a lot of rules to it, and there's an algorithm to winning fights that doesn't fit with my personality. You know, I'm, I'm a finisher, I like to knock people out, and if you want to be the most consistent champion, you want to have a wrestling-based, control-orientated style. And there's a rhythm to it. I mean, uh, look, Greg Jackson established the algorithm, and it is what it is. Uh, whereas all of a sudden, the bare-knuckle fighting came up, and I looked at it, like, okay, here's a new sport that's martial arts and combat, and right off the bat, I'm not going to have an inherent advantage over people. So here I've proven myself to be one of the most prolific submission artists in mixed martial arts. I have the record for the most first round submissions out of any division, heavyweight, lightweight, you name it, in the UFC. And I'm, you know, I think I'm top four for all over uh, of any weight class in any uh, uh, period of time in the fight and, and still think number one as far as heavyweights. And so I've won fights by knockout but I'm still known as a submission fighter because that is where my strengths have lied throughout. So here was an opportunity to where even though I've knocked people out, I mean, look, Mirko Krokop is one of the most established, credentialed uh, kickboxers 
that ever trans transferred over into MMA from K1, and I knocked him out in a kickboxing match that never once went to the ground for three rounds. Oh, wow. And so, you know, uh, Czech Congo, who's known as a very proficient kickboxer, I knocked him down and then, and then choked him out. So even though I've used my stand-up to win fights, I'm still known for a certain aspect. So the BKFC came up, I'm like, oh look, I'm in into the twilight years of my career. Here I can go ahead and show that, nah, I know I'm already great at this, but let me show you that I'm also able to be great at that. And without the advantage of, even an MMA fight, if I win by stand-up, there's always the, well, the guy was still afraid of your ground, that was still a factor. Here now, I'm gonna go fight, and hopefully it looks like I'm fighting February 5th, a, a, a battle in BKFC where it, my greatest strengths, what Frank Mirrors makes people lose sleep over, the fact that I'll rip your arm out of your socket or, or choke you unconscious, mm -hmm. I don't have that ability to do. So now it's almost like I'm the greatest rifleman in the world, and I'm gonna enter, enter into a sidearm contest where we're gonna see who's the best with a the handgun. They're like, well, we know what he can do with a long rifle, but what does he do with a sidearm? I'm like, well, let me show you. I don't even have this weapon at my disposal. Yeah. You mentioned the longevity of your career. Does that scare you? It seems like in any sport, the longevity, the retirement age is, is quite young. Does that scare you? Oh, absolutely. What's it's next? Well, it, it doesn't scare me that what's next, just because my ability to do other things, I've had success, and I'm already having sure. success in other realms. What scares me is that it's, it, look, it's a... It's a testament to age is time and on, you know, that, that I am getting older. And, and guess what? When you sit there and you break down, what does that mean that you're getting older? You're like, well, you know, I'm one day closer to death. I'm one day closer to not existing, to no longer being with my wife, no longer being there for my children, being their protector, being the oversire, looker. That terrifies me. You know, it's scary. And so when I sit there and I get up and I'm a little more in pain or uh, I'm that much closer towards the end of my career and people talk about retirement, I'm like... Wow, that's just another physical quantification of mm -hmm. mortality. And that's one thing I think a lot of fighters that we're able to, it's crazy. We have to really juggle between being a genius and being a, a, a madman because I have to be smart enough to learn the techniques of martial arts and learn the techniques of combat and warfare, but then I have to be a madman because I have to overlook the odds and statistics and go, well, that might be what this guy's going to be afraid of, but I can do it. And that's what enables me to walk inside of a cage and fight and do things in front of thousands and millions of people because I can be a madman. Yeah. You know, you mentioned earlier off mic that you know you have to be shirtless for this for this fair enough <laughs> fight that you're going for. And it's something I've noticed in boxing and UFC and wrestling. Men are always shirtless, oiled up, and of course the women just because this is our society, you know, sports bras, you know, whatever else. Is the sport over-sexualized? Well, I think violence and sexuality kind of go hand in hand. Mm -hmm. If you think about it, I mean, look, the one-on-one -on -one fighting, which I call dueling, mm -hmm. so if I get into a bar fight, me and another guy fight each other, eh, you can call that a street fight, I call it a duel. You know, like, uh, you know, if we're really fighting, it's as many friends as I can get on my side versus your side, because at the end of the day, it's all about survival and winning, and there's no such thing as cheating. Um, but when we have this kind of honorable decision that we're going to fight within these parameters, you know, I'm not going to kick you in the nuts, you're not going to bite me, and your buddy's not going to punch me in the head while I'm choking you, right? Mm -hmm. That's no longer a real fight. That's a duel. And what, what are we dueling for? 
Well, the most basic version of a duel is for breeding rights. We see it all the time in the animal kingdom now. Two males will show up, battle it out to see who has mating rights. And I think it's primitive. I mean, as much as we think that we're evolved, I mean, I know in the last 200 years, our scientific development and technological development has gone through the roof. But essentially, for the last 120,000 years, we're the same species, right? And so uh, there's certain, uh, you know, uh, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Not uh, economic, but uh, sociological aspects that are very much the same. And so there is that approach to where I'm out there battling and it's mating rights. Who's the strongest, fiercest male? And women are attracted to that. You know, as far as that is the archetype. You look, okay, here's a strong male who can win battles. He's, you know, and that's who I want to mate with because I want to breed those children and I know he's going to protect me. Very interesting. It is, it is all primal, but... The industry, and you said we could go here, is there a double standard in terms of, of sexuality? There's a lot of, of lesbians across all sports. Mm -hmm. Men who come out don't get the same treatment, and I know you feel very strongly about equal treatment regardless of who you are and who you love. I know. A lot of people put so much significance upon their sexuality. Yeah. And, uh, and here's my little dark secret I tell people. I'm all, if it bothered, one time we had a guy come into the gym, and this was years, I mean, man, I'm old. <laughs> this was probably about 18 years ago, because I'd only been in the UFC for about two years or so, you know, so it was 2003. Uh, I don't like that 2003 is 18 years ago either. Yeah, right? That's just scary. <laughs> so uh, I was training at a gym, and um, the instructor came in and goes, hey, there's a guy that wants to do a private and you, you know who want, and, and I was an instructor there, so I was making some side money besides being a bouncer. And I was like, oh, "Why are you asking us? Like, you know, it's one of the females." Well, the guy is very obviously gay, and a couple of the guys in my group, the instructors, were all like, "Oh, I don't feel comfortable." And I like looked around. I was all, "Why do you give a shit?" Yeah. Like, like I was like, "Why are you even telling me that? Like, what does that have to do with anything? I'm not going on a date with the person. We're gonna go train martial arts, like." Just like I could teach a woman or I teach a man, like it has nothing to do with our sexuality, what you want to do when you go home. So I never understood that crossover. But then I'm very much secure with what I like. I mean, right. look, if I went to prison for 20 years, I don't know what decisions <laughs> I might make. You know what I mean? Like, hey, you know, desperate times, desperate measures, right? Exactly. exactly. But, uh, but at the same time, it's like, look, I can roll with a man that has a husband and he can be watching me. I don't want to have sex with him. There's nothing about that that is going right. to change my mind. It's like, hey, that's cool. We can roll, shake hands, get on top of each other. There's no, uh, 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 there's no influence on that. So that makes me wonder, though. I always tell people, wait a minute. If it bothers you that much, it's almost kind of like if you're a thief, right? Yeah. And then all of a sudden, people like, I find that in the industry because I worked in the clubs. I always found that the guys that were screaming the loudest about people stealing, at the end of the day, guess who we found out was stealing? Right. The guy that was crying wolf the whole time. So I tell people, like, usually that's the first thing I do. When I find one of my teammates becomes very homophobic, I kind of look at him and I pull him to the side and be like, hey, man, it's okay. Like, and they always think I'm questioning, like, what do you mean? I'm all, I know what this means, that you're this scared of homosexuality because... 
if it scares you, it's because you don't understand your own sexuality and you're worried about how the world's going to judge you. And you're right. The world's not great, man. If you come out, it's going to be hard on you. You know what I mean? Like, it's just, we're not, this is not a utopia yet. Um, it is what it is. But, you know, stop being, adding to the hate and evil of the world because you're afraid of your own motives. Mm -hmm. And so uh, I do feel bad because that is part of our world. I mean, almost all our female fighters, you know, they're, they're almost considered quasi-lesbian, even the ones that aren't lesbian. Because it's like, well, you're doing a man's job by being a fighter. Which really baffles me because it makes me angry because I tell people, like, it's amazing, especially with the movement in the world, that we really see a crossroads mm -hmm. of the two different movements. We still have an organization, we have sports, where in between rounds, because I can't know what round it is, I have a half-naked woman in a bikini who's beautiful walking around with a card on who's a... I mean, come on, it's a sex object. It's all mm -hmm. she is, sexuality. Yeah. That's all she's attributing. She's not talking, it's not her brains. She might be part of Minza, but we're not <laughs> caring about that at the moment, you know? Like, it's purely upon her sexuality, right? But then she's walking around a cage, and now we look over, and there's somebody like my daughter, who's a strong, independent woman, who, look, she still can be very much a female and feminine and have a husband, but she's showing that a woman can still be a warrior and be strong and be self-assertive. And I'm like, wow, we really have a crossroads here of the two different movements. Here is women empowerment, by be, I mean, the, the, the true definition of a female fighter. Fighting is the one area that a woman in the sports world can definitely stand on the same level, if not greater, than a male. And I, and I equate that to not that a woman's going to beat a man in a fight, but I mean as far as how they get paid. Our second highest paid, as far as I know right now, and someone can stand me corrected, but still as far as financial gains, Ronda Rousey was is behind Conor McGregor. So one of the highest paid fighters in our sport was a woman. Yeah. And so what other sport? I mean, you can't point to basketball or softball or the, you know, baseball or you know, rugby. Where, look, at, look at soccer. You know, women's soccer is a far cry. Even as successful as our women's soccer team is. I mean, look, I couldn't tell you who one of the male parts of a... Uh, of our soccer team are, but you know, I know who Hope Solo is, right? right? And I think most people understand that, hey, women's soccer in America is awesome. The male guys are paid more. And in the world of fighting, it's not the same. And fighting is where women have equal footing over men. Yeah. On men. So this fight, let's then talk about this fight in February in the new year. What protocols are they gonna follow? How are they gonna, are they gonna do any social distancing? And what do you look forward to? with this new fight, with this new art form of martial arts? Hey, look, it's always a challenge. I love war. I love combat. Yeah. I love challenging myself. I like doing things that scare the shit out of me. When I sit in a room and everybody looks over and they go, hey, who wants to jump out that window? And I like the fact that other people don't want to do what I do. It makes me happy. You know, and, and it makes, when I'm uncomfortable and I can defeat that and step forward, I sleep better at night. I've lost sleep whenever I give in to that little demon voice that goes, hey, this is too hard, this is too scary, turn back. And the times in my life that I have turned back, I, I still think about to this day. Mm -hmm. Those times I'll sit there and go, man, I really punked out on that situation. Tell me one. 
Uh, if you watch my second, my uh, first fight back from my broken leg, right? Mm -hmm. So I got in a car wreck. I was a, 2004. I was the UFC heavyweight champion, one of the youngest at the time till John Jones broke my record. I was the youngest UFC champ of all time at the time. And uh, I get hit by a car a couple months later, breaks my leg in half. I put a rod in my leg, destroys my, uh, my knee. I had to have a, you know, a PCL, ACL damage. Uh, uh, hip was dislocated, but only for about six hours. So my hip didn't start becoming a problem until later in life because of blood flow. Uh, broke my ankle. And so uh, they told me I would never walk again without a cane. And so uh, about a year and a half, I make my comeback. I go out there and I fight. And, I, and in the fight... Uh, I started out pretty strong like a lion and went out there, but then I uh, took the guy down, but uh, then he shot on me and got me down. And in the fight, you know, I, I went for a few things and it just wasn't working out. My leg wasn't operating how I wanted it to operate. My body wasn't moving the way it had moved in the past. Things were just hard for me. It was kind of like, you know, if you've had a car for 20 years and all of a sudden it's like, oh, it's no longer a stick, it's an automatic and you got to do paddle shifting. And now we're going to be in a race and people are trying to beat you and you're, you're fighting yourself, you're fighting the people in front of you. And so I was having a bad day and uh, I got cut and I was bleeding and I was looking for a way out of that fight. And if anybody goes back and looks at that fight, I honestly was quitting. And to this day, that fight haunts me because I, I completely quit in that fight. Did your body feel different than it did during training? Um, in the ring? No, but I think I somehow disillusioned myself that it was going to turn on when the lights came on, you know? And then because of that mental lapse in that fight, because of my weakness of being, I mean, lack of a better word to be just, just grotesque, I was a pussy, right. you know? Um, years later, I was in a fight that I ended up losing, but against the second fight with Brock Lesnar, he completely bashed up my face in the first round. I get up, I'm covered in blood. If anybody watches that fight, after the first round, I got up and I was smiling because I had conquered that demon. Even while he was holding me down and beating me, I was actually talking shit to him. I was like, you're a fucking asshole. Fuck you. I'm going to fucking hurt you. You know, and the pain didn't divert me. And so when I got up and he walked off, there was a victory over myself that even though he went on to win the fight, uh, I didn't break. I didn't cower down like I had it previously. So that's when people talk about courage and this. I'm like, guys, look, push yourself hard enough. First of all, if you told me you've never broken, then you've never been pushed hard enough. Mm -hmm. But even though you break, all that means is that you have to go back home, rebuild yourself out, and start over and try again. And push yourself and learn what made you do what you did. Where did you fail out? Develop it, learn, read, go and take from other people grow stronger. I mean, the human spirit is just like a human bone. When it breaks, it grows back stronger. Yes. I think that is a perfect place to end this because that's a metaphor for everything you've been through and it's so inspirational. Can't wait to see what you do in February. Frank Muir, thank you so much. Oh, appreciate it, man. That is it for us today on this very special Christmas edition of Talk for Two. We will be back this coming Thursday, December 31st with a very special New Year's Eve episode with the the meme of 2020. I was supposed to air this episode back when we had our premiere week back in uh, early November, election week. I didn't do it. I decided to hold off on this for a very special New Year's Eve episode. We will have Carol Baskin with us to talk Tigers, the Netflix special, oh, and more. My thanks again to Frank Mir. Remember, you can always check out talkfor2.com for the latest episodes. Subscribe in iTunes, Stickter, Spotify, wherever you get your podcast. 
And again, Merry Christmas. And signing off, I'm Matt Bailey, reminding everyone out there to keep talking for two. You can hear more show business interviews with the stars at talkfor2.com.